We are uh, going to look at a passage in Luke 18 and talk about a doctrine that I absolutely love to talk about, namely the doctrine of justification by faith. But before we get there, I, I want to spend a little time explaining why I chose this text and that topic. If you were on campus or if you drove by Grace Church a couple of weeks ago during our Shepherds Conference, you probably saw a medium-sized box truck with bright, full-size LCD panels that had a, a big QR code. A QR code is one of those complex checkerboard-looking symbols that you, you point your camera at on your phone, and it will open a website that usually gives you a sales pitch. And the code on that lighted box truck pointed to a website called New Protestant, which as it turns out, is a group in Colorado who are actually peddling a brand of doctrine that is neither new nor Protestant. It's classic Pelagianism. Now, I don't usually click on QR codes, and uh, especially if I don't know ahead of time what they're pointing to, but this group was littering Grace Church with their business cards and had these little QR codes on it, and the underhanded tactic that they were using told me this is probably a cult. So I clicked on their code to find out what they were teaching, and the code opened a webpage with a statement in bold typeface that said this, and I quote, "'We have become convinced that faith alone is not enough. We believe getting to heaven requires we also do the works of faithfully obeying God's command.'" In other words, they said, and these are their exact words, "'Obedience, like faith,' is another condition or necessary instrument to our justification. And then they add this, however, we recognize the possibility that we might be wrong. (laughs) You think? And then they drop this challenge. To those confident that Scripture teaches faith as salvation's only condition or instrument of justification, here then is our appeal. Come to our church and show us from Scripture where we are wrong, and we will not only repent from our former position, but give you $25,000. Travel to and from our church will also be fully compensated. Now, in case anyone wonders, they are indeed wrong, and frankly, they are so damnably wrong that it really irritated me that someone would come to Shepherd's Conference and litter the grounds here at Grace Church with such a gross and obvious heresy. And in fact, the the false doctrine they are pushing is so patently unbiblical that I'm not sure how anyone could be fooled by it. It is a flat contradiction of several very clear and familiar statements of Scripture, starting with John 3.16 and Ephesians 2.8 and 9, which most of you have those verses memorized. Whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. And by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's Ephesians 2.8 and 9. And so, I wanted to reply to their challenge without participating in the kind of sectarian rodeo they were trying to sponsor, so, so I sent them a private message with just this Scripture on it from Romans 4, verse 5, and said, this is what Scripture says, "'To the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness.'" 
And I also pointed out then that in the following verse, uh, verse 6, Paul reminds us that in the Old Testament, David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. It's about as clear as it can be, but predictably, they don't think a Bible verse that clearly addresses and directly contradicts their central dogma, they don't think that's proof enough against their error, and so I wasn't surprised by that. They are showing themselves to be unteachable, and therefore they are incapable of correction. And there's simply no sweet-sounding way to say this. They are heretics. They are the, precisely the kind of heretics the Apostle Paul curses twice in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And in fact, the doctrine they deny is not only an essential element of gospel truth, I would say it is the very heart of the gospel, and it's also the very principle that Paul writes to deal with in the book of Galatians. And um, I, I want to deal with it a little bit this morning from the gospel of Luke. Now, it's, it's certainly true that good works are an essential and an inevitable fruit of saving faith, but it is definitively not true that works are the cause of our salvation, or as these guys claim, that good works are an instrument of justification. That is a theological distinction that is absolutely vital. Faith alone is the instrument of justification, and that is the principle known as sola fide, faith alone, and that's what Scripture means when it speaks of justification by faith. Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians 2.16, we are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Galatians 3.11, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. And over and over again, Scripture tells us repeatedly that the sole instrument of justification is faith apart from works of any kind. And this is what makes Christianity distinct from every other brand of religion, actually. It's that important. This is the clear distinctive of Christianity. Authentic believers acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves even with divine help. We are helplessly and hopelessly sinful and in bondage to sin, and we need a Savior. Of all the world's religion, Christianity alone teaches that God Himself provides us with everything we need for salvation. He has done all the works that are necessary to do to save us, and our role is simply to lay hold of Him by faith to be united with Christ by faith. And in the words of Romans 3.24, we are justified as a gift of God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. For anyone seeking a reason to boast, you cannot find any excuse for self-congratulation or, or, or you know, self-approval in the doctrines of Scripture. And in fact, listen to what Paul says in Romans 3, immediately after he states in the clearest possible terms that God and God alone is the justifier of the one who simply has faith, Paul asks, where then is boasting? And he answers, it is excluded by the law of faith. And he then sums up his point in Romans 3.28, where he says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Could it be any clearer? 
And so the claim that works are instrumental in our justification, that is the very idea that the Apostle Paul debunks at the heart of all of his doctrinal instruction, and especially in the book of Romans. And in fact, the principle of sola fide is the singular thread that actually ties together everything the Apostle Paul ever said about the gospel. And when he defends the gospel in Galatians and Philippians, this is the principle he is defending, and that faith is the sole instrument of our justification, and works do not come into play as a condition or a prerequisite, but we are justified at the very first moment of faith, and good works are the result. Good works are the fruit that comes after. And that distinction is vital to everything that Paul ever teaches, that we lay hold of Christ by faith alone. We do not and cannot earn fellowship with God by good works. And again, we, we stress the fact that every true believer will produce good works as a fruit of saving faith, because Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, God ordained and prepared good works beforehand so that we could walk in them. And so if you're a true believer, it is inevitable that you will bear the fruit of good works, but those good works are in no way the reason God accepts you. God accepts you solely for the sake of Christ's righteousness, which you lay hold of by faith. And that imputed righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ, is the only ground on which you as a sinner could ever stand before God. You could never stand on the flawed and inadequate righteousness of your own good works. And your good works add no merit whatsoever to the perfect righteousness of Christ. Even the good things you do as a fruit of your faith, that adds no merit to the process. Even the best things you do are tainted with fleshly motives and self-love, and that's why Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Our own good works could therefore never give us a standing before God. Only the perfect work of Christ, uh, who, who, who did good works on our behalf, that's the only way that we could ever have a righteousness that's pure enough to have us clothed in a garment of righteousness before God. And that truth is the heart and the soul of the gospel. Now, Pelagians and Romanists and other works-oriented systems will sometimes make the claim that this idea of sola fide, faith alone is the instrument of justification, they'll say that's unique to the Apostle Paul, that you don't find that doctrine of justification by faith in the teaching of Christ. And in fact, when Christ called people to discipleship, he urged them to count the cost. He talked about self-denial, and uh, he, he said, you must take up your cross. You must even repudiate your own father and mother. And he said in John fifteen ten, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And they'll ask, where's the principle of sola fide in that? And I want to answer that question today with a look at this section of Scripture in Luke 18. This is a passage that will also explain why it is that a former Pharisee like the Apostle Paul was so adamant in reminding us repeatedly that we have nothing to boast about. And let me also respond to this foolish idea that Jesus taught a kind of salvation by works or he never, he never put any stress on the doctrine of justification by faith. Actually, that doctrine, sola fide, justification by faith, is at the heart of practically every gospel summary Jesus himself ever gave. I already mentioned John 3.16, whoever believes shall not perish. 
And one verse earlier, John 3.15, he says, The Son of Man shall be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. And then two verses later, John 3.18, he makes faith alone the dividing line between the saved and the reprobate. He who believes is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then the last verse in John chapter 3 repeats the principle of sola fide. This time it's from the mouth of John the Baptist. And notice, faith, not obedience, lays hold of eternal life. He goes on to say that disobedience will damn you, but his main point there is that faith is what lays hold of eternal life. John the Baptist says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And John 5, 24, again, this is Jesus speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death unto life. Sola fide, right there in that statement. And I could go on, but there's really no point in proliferating quotations. It is clear, isn't it, that Jesus consistently identifies faith and faith alone as the instrument of justification. And then here in Luke 18, he tells this story that illustrates the principle of sola fide as clearly as any other incident in Scripture. In fact, it doesn't get any more clear than this story makes it. I should mention, there are other places, a few other places in the gospel narratives where you actually see the doctrine of justification by faith illustrated in living color in the lives of people Jesus dealt with. Matthew 9.22 and Mark 5.34, for example, the woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years gets healed, and Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And Mark 10, verse 52, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, is totally healed of his congenital blindness, and Jesus says to him, go, your faith has saved you. And a sinful woman washes Jesus' feet, and notice, Jesus doesn't tell her that this act of kindness is what earned her any merit, but instead, Luke 7, 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Nine times the New Testament records that Jesus said to people, your faith has saved you. Never once does he grant the promise of eternal life as a reward for good works. And in fact, practically, his last act before he died on the cross was granting forgiveness and eternal life to a condemned thief on the cross dying next to him, who certainly had no merit of his own before God and and had zero reason to boast before men. And so, even in those hours Jesus spent on the cross, the work He did there was punctuated by a vivid example of justification by faith alone, sola fide. So, let's not pretend that we can't find the doctrine of justification by faith in the Gospels or the earthly ministry of Christ. It's there. It's everywhere for those who have eyes to see. But nowhere is justification by faith more vividly illustrated or more clearly explained than it is in this story of a tax collector and a Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. And so, here's our passage, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. 
Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, notice Luke refers to this as a parable, and it is. It's, it's one of several parables that I suspect was based on a true story. In fact, this rings so true to life and, and really what we know of the Pharisees from the New Testament that it's no stretch to believe that this actually happened in real life at one point or another. And in fact, I guarantee that when the Apostle Paul read this account in Luke's gospel, or maybe he heard it from Luke, who was his traveling companion, Paul could certainly relate to the boasting prayer of the Pharisee because Paul himself was a model Pharisee before his conversion. In fact, Paul was the very best of the Pharisees, if you judge by the Pharisees' own standards. And Paul himself says in Philippians 3 verse 4, I myself might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he goes on to list his pedigree and his credentials as a Pharisee, he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. And in other words, what he's saying is there was no obvious transgression or inconsistency in the life of Saul of Tarsus so that somebody else could point to it and blame him for it. Nothing like that existed. As Pharisees go, he was the most meticulous, and he probably thought that he had a lot to boast about. And I'll confess something to you as well. The first time I ever heard this story, I was a young, unconverted adolescent, and I heard this Pharisee's prayer, and I thought it sounded like a pretty decent prayer. I mean, he's thanking God for making him good. He's not actually taking full credit for everything that's good about himself. And in fact, if you scolded this Pharisee about his prayer, He might have given you the same reply you'd probably get from that cult that dropped their litter all over our Shepherds Conference. He would undoubtedly claim that by expressing gratitude for God for all the good works he's done, he's actually giving due credit to the grace of God. That's how Pelagians always argue. And that's more or less what I thought, too, when I heard this passage as an unbeliever. This didn't seem like a bad prayer to me. And in fact, as an unbeliever myself, I I had a hard time understanding why Jesus would portray this religious Pharisee in such an unfavorable light. This guy was deeply religious. He made every effort to keep the law. He did seem morally superior to the irreligious, crooked tax man, and I don't like tax collectors any more than anybody. The way the parable presents these two guys my natural inclination was to favor the Pharisee. And that's undoubtedly how all of the Pharisees in Jesus' audience that day would have heard it as well. Saul of Tarsus was a young Pharisee at the time, and if he had been in the audience that day, I guarantee he would have identified with this Pharisee. He would have sided with him. 
And why not? Most of the people in Jesus' audience would have had exactly the same reaction. The the Pharisees were the most conservative religious leaders. They were religious scholars. They had great knowledge of the content of Scripture. They were so painstaking in their obedience to the statutes and ceremonies of the law that before they planted a garden, they would count their little seeds as they, so that they could properly tithe, literally count individual seeds. That's devotion. And if they weren't sufficiently righteous in the eyes of God, who was? If we have to acquire a righteousness that, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, our righteousness needs to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, then the right question to ask is, who then can be saved? And the answer is the same one Jesus gave. With men, that's impossible. You can't save yourself. And you know what? Jesus knew how the average unredeemed person would react to this story, that the average listener would look at this and listen to it and say, surely the Pharisee is the good guy in this parable. For anyone who has no prior exposure to the gospel and no understanding of how impossibly high God's standard of righteousness really is, that is a typical response. And if you listen to the parable with the ears of someone living in first century Israel, the Pharisee would be perceived as a dignified religious leader. You know, uh, Uh, someone maybe uh, the same stature as somebody who today writes for the Gospel Coalition, exactly like that. And meanwhile, the tax collectors, they were the lowlifes and the criminals, vile, vicious, oppressive, non-religious, and seemingly irredeemable publicans, they're called in the older translations of Scripture. And that comes from a Greek word that literally means tax farmer. It wasn't a flattering expression. And so this publican was an extortioner and a traitor and a man devoted to a very cruel vocation who, like a mobster, who had, you know, no morals and no honor and who made himself rich at the expense of his own countrymen by wielding the tyrannical authoritarianism of Rome. And so when Jesus gets to the closing line of this parable and says, I tell you, this man, the publican, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee, there was probably an audible gasp from the crowd, because this was a direct, emphatic repudiation and condemnation of the Pharisee's entire religious system. Jesus knew full well, of course, that this, this story was going to severely antagonize the Pharisees, and he made no effort to soften or subdue the severity of the point he's making against them. He's not looking for common ground with Pharisaism here. He didn't balance his criticism of their religious system with equal words of praise about their piety and their devotion. He doesn't encourage them in any way. This parable can only be understood as a call for the Pharisees and their followers to repent. And according to Luke, notice, this is not a story he told to his disciples about the Pharisees. He looked the Pharisees directly in the eye and told this story to them, verse 9. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and that they viewed others with contempt. And there can be no doubt that Luke is describing both the Pharisees and their close followers. Throughout his gospel, Luke highlights repeatedly this aspect 
of the doctrine and the character of Pharisaism. They took great pride in their own righteousness. And from the lofty position to which they had elevated themselves in their own minds, they looked down on everyone else and despised them. And that's what Jesus portrays about this Pharisee in this parable, as he tells it. Now, Luke, by the way, has already chronicled some pretty vivid real-life examples of this same brand of pharisaical self-righteousness. Luke 7, for example, records that incident in the house of Simon the Pharisee, where Jesus is an invited guest for dinner, and a woman who was a sinner, probably a prostitute, comes in and anoints the feet of Jesus with an alabaster jar of perfume. And Simon the Pharisee finds this revolting. He thinks in his heart. He's just thinking this to himself. Here's what Scripture says he thinks. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus, who knows his heart, rebukes Simon for his contempt towards this woman. And Jesus turns to the woman and says, Luke 7.50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That real-life scenario that had already happened is an exact parallel of this parable that Jesus is telling. And so, Jesus is not saying anything here that He didn't teach before, and that may explain the unvarnished boldness with which He challenges the Pharisees in this parable. He is blunt, and deliberately so. There is, again, no doubt that most, if not all, of the Pharisees who were there and heard this would be outraged and insulted and angry. But also, many of the rank-and-file people would likewise be mystified, confused, and maybe even offended by this parable, because the doctrine of justification by faith and the principle of sola fide actually run counter to every sinner's natural instincts. You know, we want to atone for our own sins. We want to do good works, even if we consider ourselves, especially if we consider ourselves, pious people. And and in a case like this, while it's fine for this sinner, this tax collector, to plead for mercy, doesn't he need to make some kind of atonement for his sins before he can be declared forgiven, justified? And furthermore, what Jesus describes here is much more than merely forgiveness. This guy wasn't just forgiven. Forgiveness would give this tax collector a clean slate and a a fresh start. Of course, he didn't do anything to deserve even that much, a fresh start. But Jesus goes even further and says, this man went down to his house justified, which means he wasn't merely forgiven. He was declared fully righteous, went down to his house with all the merit he would ever need to please God. No good work of his own could possibly have earned him that merit because he doesn't perform any rituals, he doesn't do any acts of penance, no deeds of charity, he doesn't offer any kind of atonement or perform any ceremony of self-flagellation. He did nothing other than confess his guilt and pray earnestly for the mercy of God. So here's a guy who made no effort to earn justification by doing good works, but Jesus is emphatic. This man went down to his house justified rather than the guy who spent every waking hour doing religious deeds. That's the very heart of the point Jesus is making here. It's partly about humility and pride, but it's also about justification by faith. 
God answered this publican's prayer for mercy and covered him with a righteousness that he could never have acquired for himself. That is the obvious and only solution to the question of how this man could have gone down to his house justified. And it agrees perfectly with everything Scripture teaches about how sinners are justified. It illustrates how God justifies the ungodly, and it shows how this man's faith was counted as righteousness. It's a perfect picture of the principle of sola fide, and it's a living illustration of the doctrine of justification by faith. It reminds us that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so I hope you understand what I mean when I say this, I think, is perhaps the most Pauline of all of Jesus' parables. When I say that, I'm simply saying this parable proves that the doctrine of justification by faith is not something that was invented by the Apostle Paul. There are people who teach that, unfortunately. But here you see that Paul simply is unpacking and explaining Christ's teaching on justification by faith, because Christ did this decades before the Apostle Paul wrote his epistles. Jesus tells us, this wretched tax collector went down to his house justified, even though he had nothing to show for himself, no righteousness of his own before God, and all of Paul's writings on justification simply explain how a thing like that is possible, that God can save even the chief of sinners without any contribution of merit from the sinner himself. Namely, this man believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's the exact words Paul uses in Romans 4 verse 3. And Paul actually there is actually quoting a verbatim statement from Genesis 15, 6, where we first, for the first time, read, Abraham believed in Yahweh and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So in other words, it's not only is the principle of sola fide not original with the apostle Paul, it wasn't a new doctrine when Jesus told this parable either. It's a doctrine that you first find in the early chapters of Genesis. So, now let's analyze this parable, and I I want to do that by looking at a series of three contrasts that are set up here that Jesus built into the story. It's a trio of contrasts that actually defines the structure of this parable, and it highlights the most important details of the story. You have here two kinds of rebels, two kinds of religion and two kinds of righteousness. So let's deal with it in that order. First of all, here are two kinds of rebels. The first words of the parable are two men, which sets up the contrast, and it is a stark contrast. One man represents all of the nation's most meticulously devoted religious dignitaries. He's a professional holy man, as to the law a Pharisee, as to the righteousness which is in the law, reputed to be blameless. And again, those, those words, remember, are from Philippians 3. That's how Paul described his life as a Pharisee. And this Pharisee in Jesus' parable is exactly like young Saul of Tarsus. He exudes religion. He gives off an aura of piety. Everything about him fairly screams sanctimony. He undoubtedly wears those broad phylacteries, those wide-as-possible leather straps that literally would bind portions of Scripture in a leather box, one in his forehead between his eyes, another one on his left arm. And that's how the Pharisees obeyed Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 8, where God tells the Jewish nation these words which 
I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. And so they wore literal phylacteries, these boxes of Scripture in their forehead. And so when you saw this man, you could not possibly miss the symbols of his religious devotion. And he makes sure of that. When he gives alms, he sounds a trumpet before him. When he fasts, which is, he says is often, twice a week, he disfigures his face to make it clear to everyone that he's fasting. Everything about his clothing, his posture, even his praying, it's all designed to make sure that he will be seen and admired. Jesus himself characterized the religion of the Pharisees exactly that way, Matthew 23, verse 5. We read it this morning. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries, and they lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplace, and they love being called rabbi by men. In Luke 16, 15, Uh, Jesus speaks directly to a group of Pharisees who were standing there scoffing at him, and he said this to them, "'You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God.'" Boy, that's an important statement that I wish evangelicals today could, could learn and embrace, that that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. We shouldn't pattern our our beliefs and behavior after what the world finds appealing, because it's detestable in the sight of God. And these Pharisees, in their era, the thing that people found appealing was this big display of religious devotion, and they had confused their own pride with piety, and thus their whole religious system was an abomination to God. So they ought to have known this, by the way. It was sufficiently clear in the Old Testament, Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Proverbs 6.16, there are six things which Yahweh hates and seven which are an abomination to him. And leading that list, number one on the register of things God despises, haughty eyes. Proverbs 29.23 is a fair summary of Jesus' parable. It says, a man's lofty pride will bring him low, but a lowly spirit will take hold of glory. And both Peter and James paraphrase Proverbs 3.34 this way. They both use the exact same uh, translation, paraphrase, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Is that not a fair summary of our parable? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And these Pharisees posed as faithful devotees to the law of God. But remember, Jesus told them, Mark 7, verse 9, you are good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. He said they were skilled at invalidating the Word of God by their tradition. And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. And then he further said, leaving the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. They had replaced biblical religion with their man-made tradition. And in other words, they were the worst kind of rebels because they papered over their rebellion with a veneer of artificial piety. And so when you see this Pharisee stand and pray, 
Understand that what you are witnessing is the most deadly kind of rebellion against God. Because not only is he a hypocrite, highly skilled at deceiving people into thinking he's more holy than he is, he's also no doubt self-deceived. He really believes this about himself, and therefore he is impervious to the summons Jesus is giving him, calling him to repentance and faith. And contrast the Pharisee now with the tax collector. Here's a man whose horrible life choices had made him an outcast among his own countrymen. He and his fellow tax collectors had a well-deserved reputation for thievery and cruelty and dishonesty. So this guy's a rebel as well, but he's an overt rebel. He wears it on his sleeve. He had lived his life up to this point with the really the opposite attitude of the Pharisee in that this guy simply didn't care what anybody thought of him. He was an open sinner, heedless to any moral standard, manifestly contemptuous of God and His Word, until now, that is. And it's a surprise, frankly, to see a man like this coming to the temple to pray. This could not possibly have been any part of this man's normal routine. Something prompted him to face his guilt and realize his own mortality and sense the impending judgment that hung over his soul. And unlike the Pharisee, this guy is not self-deluded into thinking that his own merit might give him a right standing before God. But he now clearly hates his sin, and he prays this prayer of self-condemnation followed by a plea for God's mercy. That's what it looks like to deny yourself and take up your cross. Unlike the Pharisee, who is a self-confident rebel, this tax collector is a wretched but repentant rebel. And so, these two kinds of rebels also come to the temple with two kinds of religion. So, let's consider that now. Point number two is two kinds of religion here. Both the posture and the prayers of these two characters are as strikingly different as possible. The Pharisee, it says, stood and was praying these things to himself. Now, let me say, standing in and of itself, not a problem. Jesus even commends the practice himself in Mark eleven twenty-five. Whenever you stand praying, he says, forgive. It's common posture among Jews to stand when they pray. That's okay. On the other hand, where and how the Pharisees typically stood was one of the features of their public piety that Jesus openly condemned. Matthew 6, verse 5, Jesus said, "'When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men.'" And because Jesus, in this parable, clearly contrasts the Pharisee's stance with the the bent posture of the publican, I think Jesus' description of this guy points purposely to the Pharisee's sense of self-importance and his desire to be seen and admired by men and his wicked overconfidence in the presence of God. All of those things are sort of symbolized by the way he stands. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, "...let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall." And notice also, he is praying these things, it says, to himself. That's significant, and it's correctly translated that way. Remember, Jesus is telling this whole story as a rebuke to some people who trusted in themselves. What do you think of a person 
whose faith is in himself and whose prayers are addressed to himself. What would you say about a person like that? I would say he's an idolater who has made himself his God. He trusts himself. He prays to himself. That's the whole substance of this Pharisee's religion. Once you get past the veneer of his legalism and all the trappings of his religious tradition, he worships himself, and that comes through clearly in his prayer. Look at how self-congratulatory that prayer is. The entire substance of his prayer consists of a recital of things that he believed made him superior to others, which is precisely what we mean, and we all understand this, by the expression self-righteousness. He believed he had acquired a righteousness by himself, a righteousness of his own that was good enough to win favor with God. Remember that phrase, a righteousness of his own. Scripture has a lot to say about that. And by the way, this kind of prayer was all too typical of prayers among religious Jews who were steeped in the rabbinical tradition and the traditions of the Pharisees. The Talmud actually records a prayer that was made famous by a rabbi in the late first century, Nahunya ben Hakana. This is a prayer that's typical of Phariseeism. And note, it's the first centuries. This guy was probably, possibly, a contemporary of Christ, or his life overlapped. And he records this prayer just a few decades after Jesus had rebuked the Pharisees by telling this parable. But here's what Rabbi Nahunya prayed. He said, quote, "'I thank thee, my God, that thou hast given me my portion among those who sit in the house of learning, and not among those who sit at the corners of the street. For I rise up early to occupy myself in things concerning the law.' They rise up early to occupy themselves in things which are useless. I run to everlasting life. They run to the pit of destruction. And he goes on reciting all of the things that he felt made him spiritually superior to others. Exactly the same as the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. And the Talmud presents that prayer as a model of wholesome piety. The sense of self-importance and self-congratulation all of it based on the false notion that righteous people do have something to boast about. That's precisely what any religion of works will produce, self-righteousness and boasting. And Scripture everywhere condemns this type of religion. Remember that phrase I told you to remember, a righteousness of my own. In Romans 10, verse 3, Paul says, this is the chief fallacy of his unbelieving countrymen, that knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And Philippians 3.9 is where he says, his goal now as a Christian, converted out of Phariseeism, is to be found in Christ, Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness which is from God upon faith in Christ. In other words, Paul repudiated the brand of self-righteousness that is reflected in this Pharisee's prayer. Phariseeism, you know, is at odds with everything Scripture ever taught about true and undefiled religion, precisely because it elevates self-righteousness instead of God's righteousness. The publican's religion, quite simply, is 180 degrees different than the Pharisee. The publican, his, his only religion is marked by confession and repentance, and then punctuated by a plea for forgiveness. That's all he knew about religion. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
It's a prayer that's as simple and childlike as the thief on the cross who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And by the way, the definite article in this publican's prayer is, is a precise translation. He saw himself as the sinner. He's, he's not comparing himself to others. He's setting himself apart as unique, the sinner, chief of sinners. He's not comparing himself with others like the Pharisee was because he knew full well, this tax collector did, knew full well that he would not come off very good if he compared himself with others. The Pharisee, by, by contrast, committed the exact error Paul condemns in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, where Paul says, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, because when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. He's saying that's a foolish thing to do. Note that this Pharisee also, he's conveniently comparing himself with people whom he he knew were more sinful than he swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and this tax collector. He doesn't compare himself with the righteous heroes of the Old Testament like Daniel or Isaiah. Why? Because he certainly doesn't feel he could supersede them. In fact, speaking of Isaiah, remember that the prophet Isaiah didn't pray anything like this Pharisee. He prayed like the publican. Isaiah 6, verse 5, "'Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips.'" Clearly, as much as this Pharisee may have given lip service to the Scriptures and, and claimed to believe the law of God, his religion was not biblical at all. The publican, by contrast, had no obvious religious conviction other than this newfound hatred of self and sin, and yet Jesus commends him for that. And so you have the self-confident rebel versus the wretched but repentant rebel. You have self-righteous religion versus self-abasing religion. Now here's a third contrast, two kinds of righteousness. And this is simple and to the point. We've already talked about the Pharisee's self-righteousness. That's where his righteousness lay, he believed, within himself. It was his, and he was obviously very proud of his righteousness. It even consisted of works of supererogation, meaning he, he went further than the law actually demanded. He says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Fasting, you know, was optional under the law except for one day, the Day of Atonement. So a once-a-year fast would have been obligatory. Twice a week, like this guy does, that's way overboard. And that would have been fine, too, if he made it his private business. But the Pharisees didn't. And here he prays aloud to himself about it just so that everyone within earshot can appreciate his super holiness, congratulating himself. And the tithes of all I get probably signifies that this guy was one of those meticulous seed counters whom Jesus pronounces woe on in Matthew 23, 23, where he says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, those are tiny little seeds. You count them out and tithe them while you neglect the weightier provisions of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. So, self-righteousness was the very sin that this man needed to repent of. If, if If he could lay out everything in his life and say, what do I most need to repent of? It was his righteousness. But he was obviously as proud of his sin, that righteousness, that self-righteousness, he was as proud of that as the publican was ashamed of his sin. 
It was for the Pharisee, a righteousness of his own, the very thing the Apostle Paul refers to as scubalon, literally dung, in Philippians 3.8, and self-righteousness is the very thing Isaiah 64.6 refers to as a filthy garment, and that's literally a soiled menstrual rag. And I'm sorry to be so explicit, but that is precisely how the Bible characterizes the righteousness of the Pharisees. And all our righteousness is, in fact. Jesus must have shocked everyone within earshot when He said, regarding this publican, the tax collector, He points to him and says, this man went down to his house justified. That man, in other words, was literally declared righteous by God. Where did His righteousness come from? If He's righteous, where did He get this righteousness? There is only one possibility. It was imputed to him. He laid hold of it by faith alone. And what of his sin? Well, that would be imputed to Christ, and Christ would pay the price for that sin on the cross. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the righteousness that justified this publican was, as Paul says in Philippians 3, not a righteousness of his own, but the righteousness which is from God upon him. The publican walks away converted and justified a truly blessed man. Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account. And 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31, Blessed are those who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we bow with this tax collector and May we confess our guilt as we seek your mercy from truly repentant hearts. Grant us deep repentance and cover us with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And may we henceforth abound with the fruit of good works, empowered by your Spirit, for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.